You're listening to the IC interviews from the Investors Chronicle. I'm Mary McDougall, and today my guest is Ben Rogoff, Lead Manager of Polar Capital Technology Trust, a position he has held since 2006. The Trust's share price has grown by over 550% over the past decade, and it has net assets worth over $2 billion. Ben also manages Polar Capital's open-ended global technology fund and automation and artificial intelligence fund. He has been a technology specialist for 24 years. Hi, Ben. Thanks very much for joining me today. Um, technology stocks have been one of one of the few sectors to have very good performance recently, and I'm sure you've got lots of happy shareholders. But people are starting to get nervous about valuations across the sector. What, what are your thoughts on valuations at the moment? Well, um, I, yeah, clearly the tech sector has performed very well um, during and, and um, well, actually, in fairness, um, before the crisis, and and as you know, shone in, uh, as one of those sectors that was help deliver, if not salvation, certainly some of the solutions to this fairly unique uh, period in history. And so, you know, the companies are mostly delivering pretty good results, certainly better than feared. Um, and the market has responded, or investors have responded, I should say, by investing you know, more heavily in tech. And you know, there's no doubt valuations have, have gone up. Um, when you look at the tech sectors, you know, on a forward PE basis, you know, we're pretty sort of post great financial crisis highs today um and obviously that you know leaves people with a sort of i suppose a, some concern about where valuations lie i mean for what for what it's worth um i've been doing tech for a very long time and you know people will want to make the 90s parallel which we can maybe come back to um but for now i think it's it's fair to say that um that everything's gone up in, in, in fact everything's gone up in price if you look at the price of gold or the price of silver or real estate in certain markets and um you know when the risk free rate um, or you know the cost of borrowing for companies, or the risk-free rate, government rates, or whatever it might be. Um, you know they've obviously plunged um, before, but also during this crisis. And what that's done is put you know upward pressure on on valuations of everything, particularly long-duration assets. And so the, the kind of punchline for me is is that valuations have risen. What we've done in the portfolio is to move away from some of the um, um, more exuberant areas and try to reallocate. And of course, we, you know, that's the beauty of running a portfolio like ours. There are always opportunities to reallocate money where you feel the risk reward is better. Yeah, I was going to ask you, you identify a number of core themes um, with your investment mm. approach. What themes do you think are looking the most attractive at the moment? Well, we have um, eight core themes um, in the portfolio. And I mean, if we went back, you know, years, we would have uh, met many of these now seem rather banal, but, but they're not. They're, they're actually very profound. And things like e-commerce, you know, online advertising, 5G. Um, we're excited about all of those. Um, I would say near term, you know, we, we would probably highlight something like 5G, where um, it feels increasingly like a, a national imperative that um, that wireless infrastructure is upgraded um, in order to, well, and particularly with the sort of back, backdrop of US-Sino relations deteriorating, um, yeah. you know, the, the need for a 5G network to be the underpinning of a whole, you know, an infrastructure layer, if you like, for things like autonomous vehicles and the Internet of Things um, looks very exciting. So we have exposure in there at the infrastructure level, but we also are excited about you know, Apple's upcoming hopefully, a uh, 5G handset launch that should come uh, soon enough. Um, and that might give way to, you know, a bunch of um, uh, sort of a more handset spending, more smartphone unit growth. And that would then sort of create a sort of more virtuous cycle of, you know, as it relates to 5G. So we've been reallocating towards 5G um, yeah. and also towards artificial intelligence, which remains probably the most powerful theme that we invest in. 
primarily via the cloud companies, but also via a sort of smattering of semiconductor companies. And on the sort of sell side, we've been taking profits in really our, our favorite area, which is software, where the valuations have clearly moved to levels that we haven't seen this cycle. Um, and that reflects really the, this, this new paradigm that we live in where, with kind of work from home and the need to kind of really re-architect people's compute, which um, has taken people towards um, software companies that will help them do that. And do you think, so companies like the ones that have benefited from the working from home, like Ring Central and Zoom, mm. do you think they still have a huge amount to go or have people sort of installed their work from home setup and, and maybe the outlook for them is not so good? That's a, it's a great question. And it's, it's always very difficult to get a real time sort of t- taking the pulse in real time about um, penetration rates is, is no, no, no easy thing. You know, we, we don't own Ring Central right now because, I mean, we've owned it for many, many years and it just reached a price point that we felt was capturing a lot of the goodness of the, you know, that, that, that lays, lies ahead. Uh, we still do have some, some Zoom. Um, but, but more broadly, I mean, both of those companies play into what we would call the kind of uni- uh, the unified communication space. And before we went into this crisis, um, I think it's fair to say that penetration was probably, i.e., how much of the market had already moved to a, a, a virtual a telephone system, a cloud telephone system or, or call center system. Um, and we, we estimate or we believe that that number was less than 20%. So you know, given that we're only sort of six months into this, it is highly unlikely that everybody's rolled out you know, their, their, their next generation PBXs and what have you. So I, I feel like the growth trajectory for those companies um, is, is very strong. Um, the challenge is always, and it really is a challenge as a growth investor, is to try and assess you know, how much of that is already captured in the valuation. And in the case of Ring Central, we felt that it was. And in the case of Zoom, which we still hold, we felt it wasn't. I think you have to sort of ultimately be in the right places, but be prepared to, you know, to exit stocks where you feel like the upside, the upside risk is you know, gated by, by downside risk. And should a Ring Central miss miss a quarter, which I doubt it will. Uh, but if it did, you know, I would have thought the stock would correct quite meaningfully. So, you know, Zoom, how, on the other hand, you know, video as an interface, really, we haven't seen this before. I've been doing this for 20 odd years. And video conferencing has always been one of those impossible things to solve for. And, you know, here, here's Zoom, and it, it's clearly sold for it. And now we can start to see Zoom uh, monetize some of those uh, free users, millions of free users. But also, I think they might you know, be interested in trying to verticalize their solutions and start moving into you know, a slightly more fully featured uh, solution set, which would take them into a very different and much larger market opportunity. So we've kept that one. Just stepping back a bit, over over 70% of your funds in the US, what impact do you think the upcoming election could have on the tech sector? Well, that's a great question. Um, It's a great question because obviously the you know po- politics globally or certainly in, in the markets matter to us is, is as polarized as we can remember um and i suspect that a, a biden um or democrat clean sweep um would be probably met with some nervousness by investors um because ultimately uh, of spending plans that um again it's very difficult to know exactly what will be delivered by by a democratic um, administration but i think the risk would be to corporate tax rates um and you know a, perhaps a slightly different regulatory backdrop for some of my companies um yeah. and then the prospect of healthcare reform um, and who would pay for that and how it would be funded so yeah, I think broadly speaking, it would be a, a clean sweep would be perceived or, or greeted with some caution. Um, but I think you know polls are to be treated with caution, aren't they? Um, and and 
who knows if the, if the stock market can hold together or if um, we can make further progress on coronavirus you know, before we get to, to, to that important November moment. Um, perhaps uh, Donald Trump will become uh, the most unlikely two-term president uh, in, in modern history. Yeah, it's impossible to predict, really. But indeed, indeed. Um, it's interesting you mentioned regulatory threats. The tech sector is very concentrated. Is, is regulation something that you worry about? Well, I mean, regulation exists to protect consumers um, and to protect other businesses from, you know, from, from bigger businesses that may be using unfair practices. And look, it's very difficult. I think from our perspective, we, we've long argued that the companies that are typically talked about, the, you know, obviously Google, Facebook, um, Amazon, Apple, the very large technology platforms, um, by, by, by nature of their size and dominance of their markets will always have certainly for some years now fallen under the sort of a greater regulatory scrutiny. Um, I don't think that's going away. The question of whether or not that's appropriate or not, I think is, is difficult. I, my own view is that these are, you know, natural monopolies rather than, um, sort of, I don't know, analogous to sort of, um, the kind of robber barons of the gilded age where, you know, a Rockefeller might have had 90% market share of, I don't know, refinery capacity in North America and Google may have 90%, um, market share of, of, of search, for example. Um, and so through a, a particular lens, they might look like they're, um, monopolists. But in the end, and I think it's a position that I feel very comfortable sort of maintaining, these companies, our companies have delivered incredible value to people. Um, and, and ultimately the utility that's been delivered by the likes of Google and Facebook, uh, which again are, are sort of struggling to keep all of their, their billions of people, customers happy. Um, it would seem particularly in some of these social media um, situations at the moment. Um, but but ultimately, the incredible the credible value that they delivered, offering services for nothing. If you think about how you know someone like Google has been delivering its classroom product for free during this crisis, that's helped you know schools stay stay online and being able to teach pupils remotely. You know? so, so it's a difficult one. In the end, the question for me would be, um, what does regulation look like? And I think I I, I feel it will fall sh- short of. Uh, breaking up these these companies, like some on the, um, the you know Democrat uh, side of the house would would like to see. I think that what we'll probably end up doing is having a sort of a tougher environment for M and A for those companies. So, you know, would Facebook be able to buy Instagram now? Uh, unlikely, um, and 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 perhaps a, a, a more more taxation. So, when we model our companies, and we obviously have investments in most of these companies, um, we we just naturally um, assume a kind of a, a, a an increasing rate of Tax um, that will I think, be the probably the blunt instrument supplied to these to these companies in the end. You mentioned Chinese and US trade tensions earlier. Mm. How might how might these affect the any of the holdings in your funds? Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's a conundrum. I mean, I don't know how long we have, but I mean, it's very difficult to say because because ultimately we've written about this in you know annual reports in previous years if if your you know listeners are interested pick up and have a read um but we you know it's very difficult both companies both both countries the us and china have obviously got a, a great shared interest in not you know plunging the world into a, a greater sort of economic you know situation than we're in already um but both appear to be on a very clear collision course as it relates to technology supremacy it's one of the reasons actually why i'm relatively relaxed about regulation because if you think about the risk that the US sees in China, um, wanting to sort of take, take, take on the reins in things like artificial intelligence, um, but also in chip manufacturing and design and lots of other areas that the US really leads in today. 
you know, when you think about the Googles and Facebooks and Apples and Amazons, these are at the vanguard of the U.S. tech effort. And so the idea that they're going to be kneecapped by regulators just at a point when the Chinese are, you know, are kind of coming out on the outside rail seems seems highly unlikely to me. So, so I think that, 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 that more friction is inevitable between these two superpowers. And I think on the whole, as long as, you know, hot war, if you like, can be avoided, it should be pretty good for our space. You know, the internet companies are largely distinct. So, you know, Google and Facebook aren't allowed to operate there anyway. Our payment companies are distinct. There's very little payment exposure in China. And the Chinese companies dominate their, you know, sphere of influence. Um, the Alibaba's and Tencent's, which we have in the portfolio and have had for years. And so I'm, I'm kind of hopeful that that will be just fine. Where, where there is more friction um, is in things like telecommunication, where you're seeing Huawei increasingly under the spotlight. Huawei is private, so we don't have any direct exposure, but we do have exposure to Ericsson that may do well, yeah. actually, if Huawei is banned um, in, in, you know, in certain Western markets. Um, Ericsson, we haven't owned for a long time. Um, it's now in the portfolio because if it's ever going to do, you know, do well, it's going to be doing well when companies are, countries are rolling out 5G um, and where Huawei is you know, unable to be a price disruptor. And then we also have chip companies that do well kind of regardless because they sell to either a Huawei or to an Ericsson. Um, we, so, so I think the question ultimately is, can a worst case outcome be avoided? And I think for the foreseeable future, the answer is yes. Um, but, you know, should we have a, a genuine falling out? And of course, a Biden administration may end up you know, taking the US on a different course entirely. So I think for now, we're relatively sanguine about you know, the risks associated with the sort of US-Sino issues. But, but to be clear, the, the, the countries are on a clear collision course. And that, that, that means that you know, friction is, is, all you can ultimately do is sort of kick the can. But at some point, there will have to be a conversation about how much IP transference America will accept um, you know, from US to, to China in the form of things like semiconductor equipment companies, chips, and, and so on. And, and so it's a, it's a very uh, fluid, um, slightly alarming on a medium term basis, but near term, I think uh, nobody, everybody wants to avoid a kind of an outright conflict. What position is Taiwan Semiconductor in at the moment? I noticed they're in your top 10. Yeah, um, we, we've owned this one for a very long time. You know, the, the story here is that TSMC, as, it, as it's kind of widely known, has moved into the sort of leadership position in terms of leading edge manufacturing, by which I mean um, for years and years and years, in fact, the whole history of my, my, my experience in the industry, but for you know, 20 years of serving that history, Intel has been uh, the leading edge or the leader in the leading edge. In other words, as chip designs shrink and um, um, yeah, designs get ever, ever, ever uh, smaller and faster, Intel has been in the lead. And um, maybe a couple of years ago, TSMC took that lead. Um, and that, 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 that lead is now extending. And over the last few days, you've seen Intel, which we do have a tiny position in, maybe 50 basis points, but you know, we have a, a much larger position in TSMC and a much larger position in AMD. See, uh, Intel is um, sort of half thrown in the towel, literally half, half thrown in the towel um, over the last few days. And as I said, it's, it's really struggling to get down to its, you know, at its leading edge geometries. And TSMC now looks you know, genuinely in pole position. And there's a, a good chance that Intel may look to outsource manufacturing to TSMC. So, wow, what a change in two years. Um, and, you know, but it's obviously been a, been a long work in progress and an incredible kind of hat tip to TSMC that they've done that. Um, but a, another good reminder, if you think that, you know, Taiwan is just an island off main, mainland China, China um, and 
and Intel that was the kind of US bastion of semiconductor manufacturing is just sort of, you know, thrown in the proverbial towel. And and so good reminder of the direction of travel. But but it's been great for us in the portfolio because AMD, which is a large position for us and has been for a number of years, um, Intel's arch rival. Um, has already been benefiting from TSMC's manufacturing capability and has been growing its market share at the expense of Intel. Um, and that stock has been fantastic. Uh, and now TSMC is moving, um, you know, because ultimately I think the market has realized that the valuation of that one, um, which has been relatively undemanding actually for some time, doesn't reflect now its leadership position. How do you feel about your Chinese holdings? Because we had Carson Block of Muddy Waters on our podcast recently who said he deemed China pretty much uninvestable. Well, I think people have been saying that for a long time. I mean, uh, I think that ultimately you have to get comfort with, you know, the regime that you're, or at least, the, you know, the, the political backdrop of China. And, you know, I, I just, you know, for what it's worth, our own exposure is very um, conservative. You know, we have big positions um, in, in, in Tencent and in Alibaba. We have a tiny position in Baidu um, as a sort of value turnaround um, sum of parts story. But I mean, you know, it's it's the, the first two holdings are much, much larger um, and are featured in our top 10 for years. So beyond those, there really is, is nothing in our portfolio. We don't hold A shares. We don't have anything you know, esoteric. And our, our own lesson was learned in 2006, actually, where we, we had a handful of smaller mid-cap stocks. Um, and, and it was before people really understood this concept of the variable interest entity, the VIE structures that people that some investors are still very leery of today, where you don't ultimately own the underlying, you know, because ultimately there are sectors within the Chinese market and economy that foreign investors are not allowed to own. And one of those is tech. And one way around that is to create a legal entity, uh, the, the VIE, um, which is an offshore company that then owns the underlying assets. And in 2006, we were caught out in the tail of our portfolio in very small holdings, but we learned that ultimately the balance sheets didn't belong to us, the foreign investor, they belong to the, the local business. Um, yeah. And so as a result of that experience, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And we've gone into our own Chinese investment in a very, you know, careful way. So so ultimately, yeah. very liquid companies um, that if we wanted to exit tomorrow, we could exit with, you know, no one would notice. Um, so, you know, again, I, I'm not bearish on China. I'd like to own more there, actually, I think, um, on balance. And, um, you know, I think over time, I would expect the investment backdrop to become friendlier, actually, um, not, not, not the other way around. That's interesting. And let's talk about some of your big US stocks. Amazon's, sure. quite, Amazon's quite a small holding relatively uh, at 2%. Um, why, why is this? Well, it's, it's, so the way that we run money in the trust, particularly at Polar, is um, very much with an eye to the benchmark. And my view has always been that if we can deliver 2 to 3% per annum outperformance against our benchmark, which is a very good benchmark, by the way, um, yeah. and we can do that and do it you know, in a year in, year out, we can, we can compound returns at you know, very attractive levels. And that is, without wanting to sound boastful, exactly what we have done. So when I look about the position sizes, when you think about position sizes in the trust, you have to sort of have a sort of sideways glance at what they are in the benchmark. And so Amazon today is around 3% of the trust, which looks like a sort of middle-sized position or you know, not, not, not certainly not one of the largest, um, but actually it's a zero in our benchmark. Yeah. And as a result, it's actually the single largest relative bet that we're making against that benchmark. Um, so we're very fond of it. We've liked it for a very long time, ever since we really discovered about AWS and their you know, public cloud business, which has really changed the, the entire economics of that, that company, providing them with the cash flow they need to invest for growth and what a great job they've done. So we, we're still very, we're, we're, we're big, we're, we're really excited about the company. You know, the cloud story there is what, what excites us still. 
they're obviously benefiting greatly from work from home and um, all the disruption to the high street that we're seeing. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of optionality in that business that we don't think is captured in the price. So we still believe us. We, we like that one. Uh, as I say, it's one of the biggest relative bets that we have, even if the absolute isn't as big as it might be. So could I argue that your loyalty to the benchmark has been a drag on performance in that instance? Um, you could try, but I'd like to see the numbers um, before I before I agreed to, 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 the, to your view. <laughs> I mean, like ultimately, I've had Apple in the portfolio since 2003. I've owned more Apple as a result of the benchmark than I would have. I probably own more Apple than anybody, or certainly I think anybody in the UK, actually. Um, it's a big statement to make. But, you know, my benchmark is, has 14% of Apple, and Apple is a $1.7 trillion business. And in 2003, you couldn't find a person that would buy the stock. And I bought it on the 1st of May 2003 because it, because it was doing a bit better and it was in my benchmark. And so the benchmark ha- has, you know, there are, there are times where you actually, you wish it had had some Amazon. I would have held more. Um, if the benchmark had had some Tesla, might I have bought some earlier, possibly. Um, so, I, I, you know, I think in the round, the benchmark has delivered in very strong returns. It's outperformed most of my peers or certainly many of my peers, maybe not UK peers, but when you think about the, you know, the tech universe of open-ended competition, the benchmark has done a pretty good job. And we've been you know, pretty much beating it by two to 3% uh, per annum for the last decade. So no, I don't think so. Um, we have a, you know, we have another product that we run our, our, our open-ended use it product. It soft closed recently. We soft closed it recently. Yes. Just yeah. to, um, to make sure that the availing capacity, and there's, there's a fair bit, but the, the available capacity was, was available to existing holders rather than to, um, to new ones. But we, Nick and I have run the portfolio side by side for a very long time. We've worked together now since 2007. So, you know, we, we're capturing the same themes, the same names, just in slightly different shapes. And you mentioned Tesla. Do you hold Tesla at the moment? Mm, we have a small position, sort of 60 basis points. I mean, they're, 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 our investment process. And I'm not going to bore, bore everyone with the, the details, but the punchline ultimately is we think about, you know, we think about returns with a very keen eye on risk. We really do. And um, there are periods where other funds and trusts can perform much better than us because they're concentrated and maybe they have less concern about near-term risk and they're much longer-term investors. We are sort of paranoid tech investors. We understand that change occurs all the time and that there's really very little permanence in in tech, and I know that from you know 25 years of doing this, and so there there there, there are we, we typically invest in in themes and companies where they're about to inflect positively, where where companies look expensive but actually aren't. And we bought Salesforce.com and Facebook in the IPO, and we bought Google at the IPO that very few people did. Um, and and but there are <laughs> so that works most of the time. There are some companies, however, that are more binary. Where you're ultimately having to make a bet that you know all the value in the business is at the end of its life, you know the, the, the very longest duration companies. Tesla is a you know still probably a classic binary company where if things go well, this company could have 10% market share of you know global auto units, in which case it's meaningfully undervalued. Um, if things go badly, um, it might be worthless. And and I think you know some years ago one could have said the same about Netflix, um, which is another company that we our investment process. Um, isn't ideal for identifying those companies. So thankfully, we do have some Netflix and we do have some Tesla. They've both delivered really strong returns for us, but they're not the largest names in our in our portfolio, in part as well, because they're, again, not in our benchmark, but mostly yeah. because they're, they're binary. Okay. So Microsoft, Alphabet and Apple, um, between them make up nearly a quarter of the funds. Yes. Um, uh, you... They are not binary. <laughs> they're wonderful, 
wonderful businesses, um, wonderful businesses that we've owned for many, many years. Um, and, you know, right now, um, actually, we're, we're underway all of those companies. Um, so there are larger parts collectively of our benchmark. Um, Apple is, you know, one of the most unique businesses that we've ever met. Um, yep. It's, you know, had a meaningful re-rating recently, which, you know, means that expectations are certainly elevated as we move into their 5G cycle. Um, but I think what we've, what we've learned is, and I think it's an argument, by the way, that I've been making for, I would say, at least seven, six, seven years, that this company ultimately needed to be re-rated and rethought of, not as a tech company, but actually as a mass affluent consumer brand business, where yeah. the recurring revenues are really the, you know, and the affluent customer base is, the, is really the difference between it and its competitors. And that's happened. I mean, you know, the services part of that story continues to grow. Um, and, you know, maybe there'll be some, you know, regulatory scrutiny of how the company operates its marketplace. But in the end, you know, that the app economy that Apple has enabled is, you know, mind boggling, world changing and, um, and has delivered huge value to people. So we still like Apple very much, but expectations are higher. Google, um, you know, again, I think feeling some of the negative, you know, macro headwinds that everybody's feeling um, right now, but lots of optionality in the business. And, you know, there the, the, the regulatory risk is greater. Um, and, and so our position size, our underweight position is, you know, has been growing. Uh, but we still like it. And pound for pound, it's a very attractively valued company. Um, and then Microsoft, um, you know, this is the one that disproves the rule that companies, tech companies don't reinvent themselves. I suppose you could say the same about Apple. We still like Microsoft a lot. Um, it's, it's, it's tough to think how the world would have carried on spinning without, you know, its Office 365 and Teams. Um, and, and its cloud businesses continue to do very well. But it's quite well owned. Uh, and at the margin, we've been taking profits and, and moving, you know, the money elsewhere. But these are great companies that trade on you know, reasonable valuations um, and, and therefore are likely to remain core holdings. I was pleased to see NVIDIA in there. Um, I just yeah. thought it's a, it's a really good company that might be lesser known among our listeners. Can you tell us a bit yes. about what they do and why you like Yes, it's a, it's a graphics. I mean, ultimately, this company was one of a few um, graphics processor companies that were making graphics cards for, you know, computer gamers, really, back in the day. Um, and it you know, turns out that the same processes that we use to make um, to to to, um, to move images very rapidly across a monitor are you know critical to playing games um, and and particularly at the high end of gaming. The the same idea of 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 manipulating video is the same thing that's being used to train neural networks for machine learning and AI, taking lots and lots oh, right. of pictures of something. And, and, then, and being ultimately able to, to train a computer to recognize patterns um, is the kind of almost reverse process of being able to you know, display games on, on a PC. So the graphics processor has become something much more important than it ever was. Um, and, and now is the kind of key component um, in the training or um, process of, of machine learning and AI. Um, and you know, as a result, it's one of the kind of core ways that we play um, the artificial intelligence team. Nice. Who, who would their biggest comp- direct competitors be? Well, I mean, they saw off most of their competitors and, and they've now created a, um, you know, the, the barrier to entry there is obviously they, they've got a lot of experience in GPUs and graphics processors, um, but they also have created a kind of programming language um, called CUDA, which um, again is a, you know, very almost proprietary. So that it's a huge barrier to, to, to kind of competition. Um, they're, you know, on the surface, and their, their most um, obvious competitor is AMD, which we also have a, you know, a good position in and have owned 
really since that stock was a very low single digit price. I mean, we, that, 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 that's been one of our best investments really over the last, I suppose, half decade. Um, AMD is their biggest competitor in discrete GPU. Um, but both companies can coexist very nicely um, because AMD's um, success will likely come at the expense of Intel. Um, and and um, hopefully machine learning will be helpful to, to AMD as well. But um, we, we like both of those companies at the expense, truthfully, of, of Intel and the sort of old way of computing. A few questions about the trust itself. Um, yeah, would so- you ever consider investing in unquoted stocks? Like, I guess it, it wouldn't work for your benchmark, pro- benchmark approach, but it is something that you know, company, uh, trusts like Scottish Mortgage have been doing more in. Yeah, they've done a great job. Um, And I think um, we are asked that question, um, you know, regularly. And I totally understand the question. Companies are staying private for longer um, because of the availability of capital in private markets and non-conventional private investors. Um, We've sort of ruled it out. Um, You know, we have a large team. We're we're capable of investing in privates if that's what we decided to do. we, we decided against because in the end, it comes back to that idea of being you know, able to change our minds. One of the things I've learned, and, and truthfully, anyone that's followed the way, you know, with what we've written or how we invest over the years, this won't come as a shock. But the way I typically attack the, the tech space is to, you know, think about thematically where, where we need to be invested, but also where we don't need to be invested. And I studied history at university, and I think that what the tech sector has been going through um, prior and I guess during COVID has been this idea that we're moving from a kind of highly bespoke um, enterprise, you know, a company oriented form of technology moving to a mass production alternative where the mass production like steel is being done in clouds, public cloud computing. I've been slightly obsessed about this for a long period of time. And that, that model is definitely happening now with, you know, 20, 25% of the world's computing now in public clouds. So the, the experience of, of previous, you know, industries that have moved through these, these sort of game changing transitions is that it's very difficult to know which of the automakers to own, you know, at the, at the, at the turn of the automotive era. Um, it's much easier to not own anything that makes, you know, anything to do with horse and carriages. And, and one of the things that we've done really well over time, if I may say, is avoiding um, the wrong stuff and, you know, identifying what not to own has delivered, I think, yeah. a fair amount of value to our shareholders. So the point of that, that kind of digression is that I, I, you know, the most important thing for Nick and I, as we manage, you know, what is now nine or $10 trillion of, of money and you know, investors' money is the ability to change our minds. Um, being yeah. liquid is the absolute paramount thing for us. I mean, obviously, owning the right stocks is the most important thing. Um, but the second most important thing is to make sure that if we're wrong or if technology change occurs in ways that we couldn't, you know, couldn't or didn't perceive, that we can change our minds. And so in that sense, private companies, we will never be able to do that. We will never get comfort with the illiquidity associated with those companies. And if that means that we end up with a slightly smaller investment universe um, as a result, so be it. Because in the end, most, if not all, companies come public. Um, and some go off to be yeah. you know, tremendous successes. Um, and we wish that we had owned them earlier in their life cycles. But others come public, come to the public market and have much more mixed experiences. And, and I think people tend to over-index um, the ones that we should have bought when they were private and forget the ones that you know, disappeared into, you know, into the sort of graveyard of technology history. Um, so we're happy where we are, public, public market investors with a very strong eye on liquidity. Yeah, I'm sure um, people who invested with Neil Woodford would sympathise with that approach. Well, um, you know, horses for courses. Um, <laughs> How do you define what a technology 
stock is. Well, yeah, that, that's a great question. We are going to go off index, but... Yes, we, we are. And I think that um, we're very careful about um, where the line is. Um, but I think that it's very important to understand that the line is moving. And, if, and, and I think when you think about the way that the index is constructed, that, that tells you that that's true because Amazon's still not there because it's perceived as a retailer and, and Tesla will be presumably in the automotive part of the, of the index and so on. And so I think the way that we think about it ultimately is, um, you know, could this company exist with, without the internet? You know, could we, could we buy shares in Sports Direct because they have a great online presence? And the answer for us would be no. You know, this is a retailer with a with a. I, I don't know if it's good or bad, but it has a, you know a, an online presence. So for for us, you know, the internet is a very interesting line. Could could a company exist with or you know without it? Uh, and if so, then that's not for us. Likewise, with companies like Amazon and Tesla, I think um, you know the use of technology to transform a market. You know, could 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 Tesla exist without the electric? You know, without a battery or a powertrain? No, no, clearly not. Um, and and so that would very much fall within the remit but it's um it's this bit is the art and, and not a science um and you know i think shareholders should know that you know, they've got a, a very strong board of directors scrutinizing what we're doing um and making sure that we don't veer too far off piste um my own inclination is not to anyway but um you know we, we've looked and we've made a small investment in shimano which you might know um as as a company that makes components in bikes um, and so that's probably about as left field as we've been for a while. But the story there is not only that, is there a cycle boom on because of, because of COVID and uh, this sort of different way of life that people are living, but they also have an e-bike story, which is very interesting. And so, you know, I think we're, we're prepared, we we're prepared to push, you know, on, on where the boundary is, but, you know, we haven't bought, you know, companies that are involved in insurance because they're using new AI technologies to improve their, to improve their profitability. That for us would be, a, you know, too far. Have you ever been tempted to shrink the number of holdings in the trust? Well, I think we ultimately the number of holdings in the trust reflects two things. It reflects how much we like the very largest companies in our benchmark, um, and yeah. it reflects the availability of good ideas at the right prices, you know, elsewhere. And so, right now, I mean, actually, truthfully, we have been shrinking. Um, we've taken it down probably by fifteen on average, fifteen holdings towards the hundred mark or thereabouts. Um, yeah, I think ultimately, what, what, what we we typically We'll move that around us. You know, if the team comes up with a flurry of very interesting ideas, we'll make way for some more names. But I think yeah. the level we're at right now feels about right. You know, if the question is about concentration, um, we're never going to, and we're never going to, um, you know, move the portfolio to a world where we have four percent in Tesla or seven percent in. We're just not, um, because the index ultimately yeah. will probably explain the largest positions in the trust going forward. I was going to say the trust was trading at a premium of over five percent earlier this month and today it's right. it looks like it's at a discount of four percent are you doing anything to control the premium well there's no formal there's no formal um so so the, the answer to the question is there's no formal discount mechanism um at pct um there certainly hasn't been during my time at, at, at polar um but we have bought back um one third of the Companies outstanding shares and cancelled those shares, uh, not held them in treasury. Um, you know, over the course of the company's life. So, you know, we're 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 always alive to um, you know the, the 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 risk, if you like. Or um, we've certainly proven that we're a buyer um, when when others aren't. Um, but in terms of issuance, the issuance is ultimately there um, because 
what we don't want to see, um, or at least I think it's not in anyone's interest to see a premium move, for, you know, very significantly higher. Um, and that was the experience of this trust and others during the 90s. Um, for, you know, for extended periods of time that the, the trust traded on a premium. And, you know, if the situation changed, and we, we don't think this is, you know, the nicest parallel is too easy. Um, um, but, but ultimately we don't think, um, it, it's actually right. But, but, you know, if the world was to change dramatically, um, you know, there would be the NAV would struggle and, and we don't really want to compound that with a very big move and from a premium, a big premium to a big discount. So, um, issuance is there just to help manage that process. Um, yeah. And, you know, again, we would do the same if, if the discount was to stay at a sustained level, but we haven't given a number and we never have. But I ho- hopefully your listeners will be, be, be reassured that we have a, a very strong history of having brought back large amounts of stock if required. Yeah. And am I right in thinking there's, there's no gearing at the moment? No, it's one of my, um, I suppose, failings is probably the, the right word in that I, I felt that the, um, that the, underlying portfolio had enough sort of operating leverage by which i mean when tech companies do well the incremental margins are very high and so i felt that and likewise conversely when things aren't so so good um that that you know the incremental margins are so high that when a business's revenue is small by a small amount they can have a you know, dis- disproportionate impact on earnings so i've i've long argued and felt that we didn't need to have sort of structural gearing in the portfolio we have the availability we have some gearing that we've taken on that we're you know, a small amount of um, borrowings that will allow us on a really bad day um, if we wanted to, to go geared and we have done on a handful of occasions since the financial crisis but we don't think about gearing as something that we would structurally apply and given that your first question um, opened with a you know the valuation conundrum um, it's unlikely that we would be geared today so right now we're at more like a net cash position um, of about five percent um, and with that we also have a small amount of nasdaq put options that are designed to slightly soften um, you know the the impact of a, of a sell-off should one occur, but again, very modest stuff, um, just yeah. which acts more like one or two percent additional cash. Great, thank you. One more question: um, Which sure. companies have you been adding to recently, most recently? Oh, um, well, we've we've um, we've added to a, a fair number, but we've been adding into let's have a think uh, areas that would be of interest to you. Well, we've been adding into Ericsson. Um, we thought that was a again a better quarter. Um, for margins, we think that the upside from a better sort of landscape of competition is is, uh, is likely to be felt in margins. We've added um, to Samsung, um, which again looks pretty cheap, and there's a you know potential story there in that they're also a leading edge um, manufacturer of chips. That um, TSMC share price has just uh, gone vertical on this Intel development, and it's possible that maybe Samsung could be a beneficiary. So we've been adding there actually just this morning. Um, we've added to um, a, a bunch of other companies that are exposed. Um, we've had more Netflix recently, where the stock has pulled back after a, what was a pretty strong quarter, but the expectations may have been slightly set higher. Um, we feel that you know the backdrop for Netflix is astonishing, not only um, in its kind of core guys, but also you know if you think about the conundrum faced by cinemas and movie companies, and how will you release films to cinemas that are half empty? Um, you know, is there optionality at Netflix that isn't being reflected in the valuation? So uh, we're always in the market doing something, or, or, but there's a, a, a few yeah. names to, uh, to think about. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. It was really good to have you on. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.